All right, back in Genesis chapter 22 is where we're at this evening. We left off last week kind of almost right at this crisis moment, probably one of the pinnacles of Abraham's life, this man of faith as God brought him to this ultimate place of no doubt the greatest test of his faith and sacrifice and obedience to God. Um, We got all the way down in Genesis chapter 2 as far as the end of verse 13 there uh, where the Lord brought him through this process. And again, if you weren't here with us last week, we encourage you to you know, listen to uh, the exposition of those verses there because just such an important uh, chapter in the Word of God, the, the pictures, the typology, the prefigurement of the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the things that took place through the life of Abraham and Isaac and how so much of that foreshadows Uh, what God would ultimately do on Moriah, the place Golgotha, as we know it, where uh, God would not withhold and God would not resist and ultimately stop the sacrifice as God did with Abraham, this father. Uh, But Romans chapter 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him uh, up for us all and delivered him up for us. And on top of that, of course, we looked at just some really great lessons about what it means to have our faith tested and what it means to obey the Lord even when we don't understand. And uh, and, and we looked at the first mention of the word love in the Bible and, and the first mention of the word worship in the Bible and talked about what those things meant specifically from a biblical standpoint rather than a lot of times just what we uh, develop as an idea in our mind when we say we're going to the worship service or or let's have a time of worship now and, and what does that really mean uh, beyond just going through the motions of singing some songs or those kind of things, what really is at the heart of worship and, and how it means just honestly just to bow down, to bow down our will and our heart to the Lord saying, not my will, but even as Jesus said, remember, not my will, but thy will be done. I don't understand, Lord. It's hard. Everything in my thoughts, everything in my emotions right now are going contrary to what I know the right thing is, but yet... Because of who you are and because of my relationship with you and and the love relationship, I will bow down my will and I want your will instead of my will. And that's really what we saw Abraham and Isaac doing as we talked about. Isaac was not a young man. Isaac was not a, a kindergarten age child, four or five years old, as a lot of times we see in the little Sunday school depictions and uh, of, you know, paperwork when we do this lesson in Genesis 22, but quite honestly was a grown man at this point, probably somewhere between 25 to 35 years old. So he willingly let his father bind him and he willingly chose to allow himself to become the sacrifice, though he no doubt did not understand either, but all out of obedience to his father. And out of a similar faith that he had and a, a love for his God as well. So since we only went down as far as verse 13, kind of right at that crisis moment, let's just, if we could, let me go back to verse 1 and just read through. We won't give exposition again. We did that last time. But read through from verse 1 down to 13, and then we'll pick up right there kind of at that crisis moment in verse 14 as things came to a close there in this experience. But just to refresh our minds, it tells us, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Again, the faith of Abraham. He believed that because God had to fulfill his plan, that if need be, if he did this, though he didn't understand, that God would raise his son back from the dead and perform a resurrection if necessary. So Abraham, again, took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He realized a sacrifice was necessary if they were to worship properly. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together, and they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. This incredibly emotional moment, no doubt, as a, a complete act of faith is about to take place in obedience in a way beyond any person could probably ever really begin to imagine what he was like holding this knife over the heart of his son with his hand lifted up. But the angel of the Lord, verse 11, as we saw, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So at the last moment, again, God intervenes. As we said, this whole thing, as verse 1 tells us, was intended to be nothing other than a test. And God knew that all along. Now Abraham's walking this out by faith. And God has told him to sacrifice now to offer to God, to put on the altar, again, the most precious and valuable thing that he has in his life. This child of promise who Sarah and him, remember, waited for for 25 years in faith. Finally, God blesses him with this son of promise, and then he gets to enjoy this child in this very emotional, special experience, raising this son, knowing that all of God's plans hinge upon this son for the next 25 years, developing relationship, and then God telling him, okay, Abraham, now are you willing to take the most precious thing in your life and put it on the altar and let go of it? 
Abraham, are you willing to take the thing that matters most to you, your son, your only son, the thing upon which it seems everything the plan of God hinges upon? Are you willing in faith to surrender the whole thing over to me and say, Lord, I won't withhold anything from you. Everything belongs to you. And because you are first and I love you more than what you give to me, Lord, I will put anything back on the altar. I'm willing to sacrifice anything you ask me to as a step of faith and obedience and sacrifice, God bringing his servant literally to the edge. I mean, if if you can imagine, and if you've ever had the Lord in some way bring you to that place in your life where, you know, he kind of brings us to the edge, it seems sometimes in our life, or sometimes the Lord asks of us to, to put something on the altar that's very precious to us, very important to us. Because he's doing a work in our life or a work in our heart. And kind of like this experience here, I don't think we could say 100% we've experienced what Abraham has. But sometimes I think the Lord takes us, as we talked about last time, to that place where he says, look, what I've given to you, it's important. It's valuable. It's the most important, precious thing. But are are you willing to give it back? If I, if I wanted you to put it on the altar, would you put it on the altar or would you withhold it from me and refuse if I asked you to turn it over to me and to let me be in control in that situation? Again, testing our faith, testing our obedience, our devotion to God, our love to God. Abraham brought to this spot at the last moment, again, God intervenes, he stops him, he provides a replacement for the sacrifice, he sees this ram over there in the thicket it tells us and he goes over and takes the ram and offers it instead of his son and no doubt a tremendous sigh of relief from this father's heart a tremendous sigh of relief from from Isaac's experience as he's there trusting completely the will of God himself too and and just surrendering himself to it and saying okay I'm willing to let you put me to death I'm willing to just completely allow death to myself when I could resist and stop the whole thing. And that's a whole other side of faith and obedience and sacrifice where we're willing to at times let ourselves be vulnerable when our typical natural inclination is very strong in self-preservation. The self-preservation drive in a human being is extremely, extremely strong. Whether it's physical danger or just you know emotional hurt or treatment from somebody, we naturally have a very strong drive within us for self-preservation. So for us to just submit and surrender ourselves in complete vulnerability and say, there you go, put me to death, kill me, plunge the knife right into my heart, there you go, I'll completely let down every wall, every barrier, no resistance, no protection, there you go, whatever you want to do to me, that's, boy, that's an incredible test of our faith as well. And to be willing to completely trust the Lord to protect us, to preserve us, to to care for us, and to, to at times, you know, let our walls down or let ourselves be vulnerable rather than always trying to protect and guard our, you know, again, that's tough. And yet Isaac did the same thing, and and God here rewards both of them as he says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. And notice, because this whole event happens, verse 14, we pick up, And Abraham, it says, called the name of that place where he had this entire experience, The Lord will provide, or literally the Hebrews, that term there, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, or some believe the Hebrew literally could be translated, the Lord will 
see to it. Same idea there. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it that what is needed to be supplied will always be supplied. Again, Abraham said, remember back up in verse 8, as his son said, Father, uh, we're missing one critical component here. Uh, We have wood, we have uh, a knife, we have a fire, but uh, we don't have the thing that we're supposed to sacrifice. I mean, the one most critical piece in the act of worship and the sacrifice at the altar was missing. And Abraham, remember, in a complete declaration of faith, says to his son, son, and again, I love this because what a great example as a father to his son to demonstrate what it means to live by faith and to say, son, listen, God will provide. God will provide for himself a lamb. The thing that is lacking, the thing that needs to be supplied, God will do it. God will come through, and we're going to watch him come through. And you know, as as parents, whether our kids are 6 or 16, or whether they're 36, to still, with having lived longer in a walk in a relationship God, in those critical hours to be able to speak faith and encouragement into the souls of our children, to say, listen, I've walked with God. He'll come through. He's going to come through. I don't know how he's going to come through, but he will see to it. He will provide. He will do what is ever necessary, even in the most critical of hours, to come through. Abraham didn't know how it was going to happen. But he said to his son, the Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And, of course, once the Lord said stop and intervened and supplied the sacrifice for them, And again, as we said ultimately before, what was supplied was a ram. So there's still a prophetic element to this. He said God will provide a lamb. Uh, And of course, ultimately, it's the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, on this same Mount Moriah that thousands of years later would be supplied by God ultimately to take away the sin of the world in the ultimate sacrifice that God the Father makes with his own son. But Abraham calls this place now, again, giving a new dimension to who God is, the Lord who provides, or the Lord who will see to it. As he said, to the, it said to this day, it, that is to the day of this writing, when potentially Moses was recording these things, to this day it is said in that mount, in the mount of the Lord, notice, it shall be provided. Future tense. That's prophetic there. It is, seems that to that hour of the writing and the recording of the book of Genesis, which took place after these events historically, as we believe Moses was the one receiving from the Spirit and recording these things for us, it says, as it's said to this day, that is that day this was recorded, in that mountain it shall be provided. In other words, there was something that Abraham maybe saw in this experience or he went through whereby everyone knew and it was common knowledge among the people of Israel, look, there's something about that mount where one day it shall be provided, ultimately that lamb that Abraham reckoned and, and that it was looking forward to the lamb of God, Jesus, that it shall be provided. But what a beautiful thing to realize in this whole picture here and this whole spiritual experience, the God who changes not, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, to realize that when God takes us through things, and maybe he's taken you through something in the past, and you can say, you know what? Boy, I know that I've seen it. Or maybe right now he's taking you through something and he's putting you through a test 
and whatever it may be, that when we go through those critical, challenging hours where God says, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to obey me? Or we find ourselves in a place where we never wish we would have had to been facing something difficult to know that the Lord will see to it. That that's the God that he is. That whatever needs to be supplied, whatever is necessary, God will step in. Even if at the last hour, God always is faithful to step in, to intervene, whether it's his grace whether it's the few dollars or it's the $50,000, God always steps in, whether it's physical provision or it's emotional strength or it's spiritual renewal or it's just the grace that we need to bear up under something. God, God can provide in many different ways, but he's always faithful. He always sees to it. He's the God who provides it, to see ahead and he supplies what is necessary in whatever way it comes to pass. And, and be encouraged by that because he's the same God today as he was for Abraham. And he's not a God of partiality. And when you face things, listen, don't regress and back up in obedience, in steps of faith, in the things that God tells and asks you to do, even if he is testing you in a way like you've never been tested before, be faithful, be obedient, obey the voice of the Lord, and give God a chance to show you who he is. And see what he does, whether it's the strength to overcome sin, whether it's the money you need to take care of something, or whether it's the ability to endure something, the Lord will provide and see to it. Verse 15, listen, the Lord then speaks a second time. It says, to Abraham out of heaven and said to him, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because, God says, because you have obeyed my voice. So again, Abraham once again gets this affirmation, this reaffirmation from God regarding God's promises for him, God's plans for him in his own life. Interesting verse 16. Notice here again as God is assuring him with this promise. Verse 16, God says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Interesting. By myself, God says, I'm swearing by myself that I'm going to do this. You know, it tells us this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. You might want to jot it down. Let me read it to you. It says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Listen, this refers to this account. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation for them is an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
that we might have strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. In other words, again, the writer of Hebrews pointing to this reality, how God swore by himself. And he said, listen, when, when we want to really, you know, give an indication we're serious, you know, we say things like, you know, I, I, I swear by my mother's grave or, you know, I, I, or I swear to God, people will say, you know. And the idea is when we try and think of something more important, we're trying to indicate how serious we are and to give a greater assurance that we're going to follow through with something. We, the lesser always swears by the greater. It's just a natural thing that we do. Well, the Bible is saying, listen, who does God have to swear by? <laughs> there is no one greater than God. You know, so he says, that's why God has, swears by himself. God has no one greater to swear by. But the reality is, is he's saying, listen, there, there is no greater assurance than when God says, I have sworn. Because he is a God who it says in Hebrews chapter 6, a God, it says, who has an immutability of his counsel, which means it, it cannot change. What God says must come to pass. He says in Hebrews 6 as well, it's impossible for God to lie. In other words, that's an aspect of God's nature that we don't share. We can say something and be real sincere, and people all have the capacity to lie because we're all sinful and weak and we have a, a, a sinful nature and the incapacity to always be as faithful even as we want to. But he says, for God, it's not just that God won't lie. He says it's impossible for God to lie. God cannot say something and not do it. It, it would contradict his nature. He is an unchanging, ever-faithful God. And it's, it's not that he won't. It's impossible for him to lie. So anything God says, he has to do. Which means that, again, even as I was thinking of this this morning, as I was reading Nehemiah chapter 1 in my devotions, how Nehemiah, as he starts to pray to God regarding his burden and his concern for the people of Jerusalem, how the wall's broken down and the gates are burned with fire, and he's knowing, Lord, I know this isn't what you want for things to still be in such a mess. And his heart was burdened, and as you read Nehemiah 1, when he starts to pray, he just starts taking the scripture and he just starts presenting it back to God. Lord, you said... That if we were disobedient, that you'd scatter us all over the earth. But Lord, you also said, if we return to you. And then he takes the word of God as well, and he starts presenting the promise. And he very wisely approaches God on the terms of his own word for one simple reason. Nehemiah understood, Lord, if you say something, you have to do it. It's not that I'm twisting your arm. It's just because of who you are. It's because of your nature. There's no better way to pray than to pray with the word of God. And to realize that because what God said is true and he cannot lie, anything you find in the word of God that God says, God will do because he can't lie. He won't change it. He can't change it. It's guaranteed. It's credible. It's the one thing we have really in many ways that is credible. And, and here God swearing by himself to Abraham that he would fulfill this promise that he was going to bless Abraham abundantly all the more. Again, verse 16, he says, Abraham, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I'll multiply your descendants, he says. And he says, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So again, God was going to increase and multiply Abraham's uh, lineage, God was going to expand his boundaries and bring blessing upon his life and, and the plan of God through his life, as well as God was going to bring triumph. He says, your, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The idea is that they shall inherit 
and God would just give to them things that didn't even belong to them. God would give them the things of their enemies and they would inherit and receive. He says, verse 18, and in your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's no doubt a reference, not just to how God would work through the Jewish people. That's a very clear, direct reference to Jesus Christ, a messianic promise. How in the seed of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, are all nations of the earth blessed? Well, because our Messiah is Jewish. He came through the line of Abraham and ultimately through the line of Israel. And in Abraham's seed, all nations of the earth are blessed because they're blessed in Jesus, because of what Jesus came and ultimately did. But Again, just such a beautiful thing to see because, again, here's another one of these first mentions in the Bible. Verse 18 is the first time we find the word obey or obedience. And here, the first time we find it, it's the last thing really that God is conveying to Abraham regarding their relationship and Abraham's walk of faith with God. And he says, Abraham, I promise these abundant blessings upon you, expanding the plan of God through your life, blessing you, multiplying you, giving you things and letting you inherit things that you don't even have to work for. I'll just give triumph and victory in your life. He says, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, but the real key, verse 18, he says, this is all because you have obeyed my voice. Because you've obeyed my voice. Again, was Abraham the most talented guy in the world? Of course not. Was he the most intelligent guy on the planet? Was he, you know, was he a skilled craftsman? Was it because he was a great military leader? Was it because he was a great charismatic person? No. Why did God do what he did in Abraham's life? God says, I'm not saying it. God says right there, verse 18, Abraham, it's because of the relationship that you have with me. It's because this man was a friend of God. He was simply an obedient servant. He was someone who was willing to obey God no matter what the personal cost, no matter what others thought, no matter whether others agreed with it or not, whether others understood what he was doing, if it meant personal sacrifice. Pretty evident after chapter 22, this was the ultimate evidence of Abraham's willingness to put out personal sacrifice and to risk everything to put the most valuable precious things that mattered to him the most that other people would clutch and hold on to and say there is no way i mean there's no way i would give that up there's no way i would let go of this or and he says abraham because you wouldn't withhold because you didn't hold back for me because you were willing to give whatever i asked of you and whatever it required of you he says because you've obeyed my voice. Listen, there, there, there's the, the, the essence of obedience. It's obeying the voice of God. You know, we obey lots of other things, quite honestly. We obey the whims of our flesh and our, our desires and our emotions, and we obey the pressures of other people, and we obey, let's put it this way, we obey lots of other voices. You ever notice? <laughs> and there are lots of voices in our lives. You know, the voices of other people at work and the voices of other people in our, you know, our schools and the voices of other people in our family. You should do this and you should, the voices of other people. 
the voices that come across the TV screens and the advertisements and the voices of our own desires and passions and our feelings and our emotions and, and our logic. And there are all these voices, the voices of our family members, and, and yet there's the voice of God. And that's the voice that we need to be obeying. We need to learn how to listen to, to distinguish, to discern the voice of God and obey God's voice. Out of faith and out of love and devotion for him. And sometimes it may test us as it does with Abraham. But listen, what God is telling us is, listen, this is what matters to me. Just obey my voice. You don't have to be talented, smart, you know, skillful. Look. I want to bless obedience. God blesses obedience. Here's a clear indication. The first time obedience shows up in the Bible, it's attached to blessing. Don't tell me. I understand that we're not saved by works. and I understand the balance of all that. I'm not trying to you know, distort the gospel message. I understand that we are saved by grace through faith. But that's salvation. That's experiencing eternal life. Right. That's completely given as a free gift of grace. But Jesus said... In like manner, in the Gospel of John, if you love me, obey me, obey my commands. Jesus equated obedience with a demonstration of our love for him, indicating that we have a relationship with him. And God blesses obedience. Listen, God wants to bless your life. He loves you. He is crazy about you. And he wants to bless an obedient life. He naturally, God does not want to bless disobedience. He will not bless disobedience. We may falsely think we're getting away with things, but God will never bless disobedience. But God will bless obedience. And by being simply obedient to God in the small things and the major things of life, we can know that God's blessing is going to come upon our lives. It's a great motivation. And what a wonderful thing, this great example of Abraham. He says, Abraham... This blessing will come upon you because you didn't withhold your only son and because you've obeyed my voice. Because you obeyed me, Abraham, great blessing will now come upon your life. What a great motivation for us to obey God and to experience the blessings he has for us in our lives. Verse 19, so Abraham then returned back to his young men after this experience, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, which is pretty much the ultimate southern border of the area of Israel as in their minds. And Abraham then dwelt, it says, at Beersheba. Again, Abraham was sort of a, again, a, a pilgrim, a sojourner. He moved around the land of Israel, stood in tents, lived in different locations as he moved around with his company and his animals and great entourage. And, and boy, what an amazing, can you just begin to imagine, what an amazing experience that must have been to take that journey back down south to Beersheba after the experience that just happened on Moriah. Can you, I mean, we're told nothing of it. Interesting, the Bible is just like totally silent. We get to read it here, but can you imagine Abraham giving the testimony to his other two servants and going back and telling Sarah. I mean, I can't even imagine. You know, I've been married for you know, you know, 18 plus years. And you, said, you did what? You went where with Isaac? That's probably why he didn't tell her before he left. And again, if you remember back in chapter 22, verse 11, it says Abraham rose early in the morning because if he probably didn't slip out of the uh, 
you know, bed sheets there and quietly out the tent flap before Sarah woke up. Where are you going, honey? And, you know, that would have been a real, real major crisis on him. Well, I'm just going to sacrifice our son. You know, just, <laughs> just going to go obey God. You're taking this too far now. This obey God thing. You keep thinking he speaks to you. And, and, and it would have been a real mess. But Abraham now goes back and, and imagine him telling the story to Sarah and her hearing Again, initially it may have been shocking, but for him to be able to share with his wife what God did and how God came through and how God provided and how he heard, and just to share that testimony with his fellow servants and to tell people that this is Jehovah Jireh. He learned something else about the, the reality of God's nature to be able to share and impart that. Listen. Let me tell you what God did. And he came through. The Lord saw to it. And you know what? The Lord sometimes takes us through things that we might experience those things. Listen, so that you can share with the people in your family. You can share with the people who you work with around you, your friends and so forth. Listen, I'm not just telling you this stuff theoretically. I lived it. God did it. I I experienced it in my own life. And sometimes God will test you. Sometimes God will take me to the edge. He will bring us through things. But listen, the testimonies of what God does in our life, that is so powerful. It's one thing just to say things theoretically and say, well, the Bible says this and that. But when you can say, listen, the Bible says this and let me tell you how I live this, how I saw God come through. How I watched God work and he did it and he brought it to pass. Man, that's the kind of stuff that stirs people's hearts. That's the kind of stuff that instills faith and brings great encouragement and comforts other people and gives them the encouragement, especially in the hours of greatest need. Well, verse 20 now gives us this kind of interesting little epilogue to this chapter. It says, now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. So he gets word now, somebody, maybe a traveler from the area of Mesopotamia comes over to Canaan where Abraham is. He's been gone for many, many years from his homeland where he left, Ur of the Chaldees. And someone as a messenger comes and says, hey, your, your brother Nahor, the one who didn't die, as we have recorded earlier on, uh, he and his wife Milcah have, have had children. Verse 21, notice they had a little trouble with names, Huz his firstborn and Buzz his brother. So <laughs> I don't know if they were running out of ideas or just really struggling. You know, they didn't have a name book in that day. Huz and Buzz, you know, maybe they were twins, you know. Um, Huz and Buzz. So if you're looking for some names, please don't punish your kids like this. Forget this one. Huz and Buzz. And then Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chesed and Hazo, Pildash and Jidlaf and Bethuel. And Bethuel, verse 23, this is the reason this is here for us. Verse 23, take note. Bethuel begot Rebekah. And that's important. This The Bible sets this here before us because Rebekah, who ultimately becomes the wife of Isaac, the son of promise, who God just preserved through this miraculous test. And the Bible's setting this before us to show us the, the birth of Rebekah, the connection to the family of Abraham. Ultimately, this would be like Abraham's uh, great niece, uh, two generations removed, Rebekah. 
And these eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba and uh, Geham and Thahash and Maacah. So we get this brief lineage again, the Bible wanting to set before us how, again, take notice, in everyday circumstances, what's God doing? God is hundreds of miles away working on the other end, preparing a bride for Isaac who will ultimately become the next couple that God's plan continues to funnel through, Isaac and Rebekah. Chapter 24, we'll see Abraham sending out the servant to go and get a bride for his son, uh, to go and find this wife, Rebekah, for him. And I love this, again, because apart from Abraham and Isaac doing anything, God's already working on their behalf. God's already got the next step in line for the plan of God. And how wonderful. You know, many times... You know, God is already working on the other end. We don't see it. We don't know how he's working. And God's already ahead of us, working and preparing things in advance. Again, whether it's readying the mate for us that he has, or whether it's just putting the next piece together for his plan to unfold. Here we're told, you know, over back in the area of Mesopotamia, Rebecca has now been born. Uh, she's being raised there in the family of Abraham's brother as one of the great nieces in chapter 24. The two will be joined in marriage. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, And Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we now read of the the death of Sarah. It tells us she dies at 127 years. And we're not certain, but it seems the way the language reads there in verse 2, that this probably was something that happened sudden. It says that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah. So again, maybe he was off traveling uh, in business. It seems he moved around the land of Canaan. And, and now all of a sudden, this precious bride, this lifelong partner, Abraham loses his wife, and again, it says she was 127 years old. Abraham was 10 years older than her. But take into consideration this relationship that must have existed between these two. I mean, how when you're dying at 127 years old, they've been in the land for at least 60-plus years married, and they probably were married before that. So again, how long were these two married? 70 years 80 years, I mean, just the the bonds that develop as two become one flesh, and if you've lost a spouse, I mean, I have a brother-in-law who uh, a number of years ago got in an, an industrial accident where he lost both arms simultaneously at the same time, lost both arms up at the shoulder joint, uh, and, and lived uh, miraculously, but At the same time, also, as a survivor of that kind of a traumatic injury, also realized that 26 years old when this happened, after he had lived for 26 years with two arms and hands, that now at 26 years of living like that, he had to keep living for a whole lot more years, but his life would never be the same. And he had to readjust and learn how to survive and keep living, but to live completely differently with something that he was very dependent upon that was very much a part of his everyday life and experience in a tremendous way. And I look at that, in many ways I look, you know, Lord, I I don't even want to begin to think about the day. I've been with my wife, you know, married for 18 plus years, and we knew each other before that, and I just, I can't even begin to fathom 
what it would be like to one day lose her. But I have to realize as well, reality is that that is a part of the plan of God just as much as everything else we journey through in this life. That as much as we're born, the Bible says one day we're going to die. It's appointed for man to die once. We don't know when that's going to be. But it's a difficult process. And here Abraham now goes through another one of the most difficult times. Again, it doesn't say it here, but his faith is being tested again. Interesting, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, and God tested Abraham, but I tell you this, when you've been with somebody that long and you're that connected and the bonds that develop between a husband and a wife and to lose your spouse at the time when it comes, you guarantee his faith was being tested again. You guarantee all of his emotions and everything within him. Lord, how could you take her from me, Sarah? I mean, think about this. Sarah, who was with this guy for all these years, she was with him back in Ur of the Chaldees, things were going great, and then all of a sudden he comes home one day, honey, the one true and living God spoke to me, he said, leave everything, pack up the Ur Hall, move to a place that I have no idea what's, and she followed him. And she took this venture of faith and she followed him. And then the plan of God and waiting on the Lord and all these things they went through, walking with God together and she stood by his side and supporting him and, and, and this precious, precious person in his life. And now all of a sudden she goes home to be with the Lord. And therefore it says Abraham, it says, came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Great grief. Again, biblical to mourn, biblical to grieve, to weep. The Bible just tells us in Thessalonians, that it's natural for the believer to grieve. It just says that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. To grieve is biblical. Notice, the first time the word weep shows up in the Bible. Again, I'm with people on occasion, and whether it's for just something difficult going on, or you know, even like last Saturday. Last Saturday I was with a family uh, up in a hospital in the Philadelphia area and sat with them. And basically sat with them why they unplugged the life support machines of their relative and just sat there and waited to watch their loved one expire, to die. Believer knew the Lord to go home and be with Jesus. We basically waited to usher them into eternity. But to sit with someone and to, to watch them have to deal with that reality and that whole experience and to watch them experience the mourning and the grief and the tears and to weep and and sometimes in those moments i've i've many times over i had people say as they're crying I, I, i'm i'm sorry I'm, and people apologize for crying and, and my simple response to that has always been listen god created tear ducts what do you think he made those things for that's a release valve so you don't lose your mind <laughs> it's biblical to weep w says there's a time to weep and Abraham, mourning and great grief, weeping, the tears no doubt running down his face as he loses his precious wife. Again, the Bible tells us Jesus himself wept. And here Abraham, weeping as he loses Sarah, this precious woman in his life of many years. Verse 3, and Abraham, notice, stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, knowing that he needs to bury Sarah. To this day still, they bury their dead the exact same day. It's cultural. In a hot Mideastern climate, they did it for practical purposes because the bodies couldn't be preserved. They would bury their dead. Everything happened the same day. The same day your loved one died, you went through the whole process and buried your loved one that day. It wasn't no three, four-day process or we'll make arrangements down the road. They would do it the same day. 
And it's very cultural. Some cultures still do it. So Abraham realizes as he's mourning and weeping, I also have to do the honorable thing now. I need to, I need to keep, I can't just sit here and fall apart. I, I need to take care of things and, and finish this with honor and honor my wife by finding a way to bury her body. It says he stood up from his dead, spoke to the sons of Heth, who were from the Hittites, and he said, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, very interesting. Abraham says, give me a property as a burial place that I may bury my dead, he says, out of my sight. Interesting. I think Abraham had full assurance that though she was no longer going to be in his sight visually, he knew that she was now in the presence of the Lord. And he knew that. And I think he realized that. You know, she's no longer going to be in my sight. I'm not going to get to experience her anymore physically, presently. But I haven't lost her. I haven't lost her. You know, I heard John Corson say many, many years ago that somebody came to him and said, to him, hey, I, I'm sorry to hear about you, you losing your wife. And he said, you, I didn't lose my wife. I know exactly where she is. Something's only lost if you don't know where it is. I know exactly where my wife is. I didn't lose her. I don't see her anymore. I don't experience her, but, but I know that she's with the Lord. And Abraham here, I think there's a part of him that has that hopeful assurance. I, I need to bury her body out of my sight. He says, give me a property. Interesting, he calls himself, verse 4, a foreigner and a visitor among them. Again, here's this guy. That whole land where he's at right now, who did God say it belonged to? Him. Look at the incredible humility in this man of faith. Shows you faith a life of faith, a life of obedience is also a, a life of tremendous humility. Abraham doesn't say, uh, hey, God said this whole area belongs to me, and I know that, and that was true. God had told him that. Abraham, this is your territory. I gave this territory to you. But he calls himself, interesting, a foreigner and a visitor. He says, you know, I just, I, I feel very out of place here. This is where God called me, but I, I, I just still kind of feel out of place, and I'm just a visitor. And just, again, this complete open-handed attitude of Abraham asking for a place to just bury his wife. And the sons of Heth answered him, saying, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. So it shows you what great respect Abraham had. He had an incredibly respectful testimony among them people. They had come to, to really value the character that they saw in Abraham as he dwelt in those land around those people in that day. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. Take the best, they say. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. So it's very generous kind of noble offer. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me, notice the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me, notice at the full price as a property for a burial place among you. So Abraham stands up as they've respectfully said, Hey, Abraham, you're very well respected among us. We, we, we appreciate you and, 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 and what you represent. Take any place you want. And Abraham, verse, again, 7, 8, and 9, notice the tremendous, again, humility. Notice the respectfulness, the courteous attitude. What does Abraham need to do? He really needs to make a business transaction here. 
He needs a piece of property to bury his wife. He needs to purchase a piece of property as a burial site. And I love this. Again, here is a wonderful example of the life of a man, a woman of God, and the way that we should be interacting with people in the world around us. Look how respectful Abraham is in this process. Look how courteous he is. He bows down before them. He speaks respectfully. He's gracious in his interactions. And you know what? I think when we interact with people in the world, in business, in stores, in place when interacting with people, uh, listen, uh, being courteous isn't just about proper manners, okay? It's a spiritual grace. We should be respectful people. We should, our Bible says our speech should be seasoned with salt but full of grace, And when we talk to people in our places of business or we're purchasing something, we should be respectful, courteous, not insulting people, you know? I think sometimes as Christians, well, God's favor's on me, so I'm just going to tell you like it is because the authority of the Lord's with me, brother. And and we almost, you know, cop this kind of holier-than-thou attitude. We may not say that verbally, but I almost sense sometimes as I watch Christians, it's almost as if because I know God's hand or authority is on me, well, I'm going to kind of just, you know, throw my weight around a little bit, and and we can be some of the most discourteous people sometimes in an effort to kind of put on spiritual airs. And Abraham here, with complete courtesy and humility, again, I love to, again, verse 8 and 9, he says, listen, if I can have a place, I already know what would work. This man Ephron, he has a cave on the back of his property in that area. Would somebody speak to him, see if he would be willing to sell me his property? And I love verse 9. He says, let him give it to me at the full price as a burial place for my wife. Take notice too, again, Abraham, he did not expect special favors because he was God's man. I like that. He says, I want to pay full price for it. I'm not looking for a handout. And a lot of times, can I tell you something? Because I've been on both sides in the world and a believer. A lot of times people look at God's people as people who are always looking for a handout. Hey, we're going to do this event, so uh, can you give us a handout? Can you give us some things for free? Because we're going to do this thing for God. And, you know, God's kind of running low on his budget. So and, and, and we, can, can you give me a discount? Because we're... Listen, Abraham says, no, I'm looking for a handout. I don't need special favor. Somebody that I think is very wise, it's in red letter ink in my Bible, said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And he said, listen, I, this is what I want, and I'll pay full price for it. I'm not looking for a freebie. I'm not asking for a discount. Again, if God wants to do that, praise the Lord. But we shouldn't have this attitude where we expect certain things or special treatment or special favors. Abraham says, I'll I'll pay full price. Verse 10, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, who all entered at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Again, he's Abraham, take it. Again, whether he really means this or this is customary uh, cultural Hebrew bargaining that begins to take place. He's like, no, 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 you take it. I don't want you to buy it. I give it to you. Bury your dead. In verse 12, Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of all the people, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me. And I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham and said, My Lord, listen to me. Well, 
since you want to pay. The land is worth about, he said, <laughs> the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But, you know, what's that between you and me? We're friends and, and you're a special guy. Look, it's worth about 400, but, but what's that between you and me? Now, at this point, I tell you this culturally because it exists to that day in the Mideast. Ephron is expecting Abraham to haggle at this point. He's expecting Abraham to start bargaining with him and to start negotiating. This was typical. Well, I mean, here you, you know, just just take whatever you want. You know, seeming so generous. Oh, you're such a good guy. I can't take something. I want to pay you full price. No, 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 take it. I want to. No, no, no. I just I want to pay you. Well, okay. Well, how about 400 shekels of silver? Now, that was a very high price for a piece of land. And I tell you, when he said this, he's expecting Abraham to say 400 shekels of silver. Come on, let's be reasonable, brother. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I need to have some money left over for the, uh, you know, the, 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 the meal afterwards. And how about this? He's expecting for a bargaining and negotiating process. But look at verse 16. Abraham, it says, listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver. For Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees in the field which were within the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. And Abraham, it says, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. So here's what happens. He's expecting Abraham to negotiate. Well, I mean, it's probably worth about 400 shekels of silver. And Abraham knew in his mind, again, this isn't a dumb man, he knew in his mind that was a very high price. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't barter. He doesn't do anything. He shocks, no doubt, this guy and all the people around him at the city gate. And he says, 400 shekels of silver? No problem. And he pays an exorbitant price. He pays a higher price than he should. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Abraham valued God's testimony more than he did his money. He valued the testimony of God because I tell you this, he shocked everybody in that city gate. Because they just, can you believe what? He didn't even bargain. He didn't even negotiate. He let himself get ripped off. He just blessed that guy with at his worst hour. I mean, it almost seems, seems rotten, doesn't it? Though it happens, here's somebody at the worst hour, he's got to do something, you know, at the death of a loved one. And sometimes, you know, funeral homes, I've seen this before too, they take advantage of people at their worst hour because they know they have to do a funeral service and they rip them off. This guy's like ripping Abraham off. And Abraham just allows it to happen and he pays the guy full price. And I think, again, for two reasons. One, he's being wise. It says he gets a deed, and now the land belongs to him. Interesting, the only piece of property Abraham ever owned in the entire land of Canaan was a tomb. This guy lived by faith like a pilgrim. He, he just rented and lived and, and moved around with a light touch on everything. The only thing he owned was a burial place for his wife where the rest of his family could be buried as well. 
and, and no doubt he, he does this so that he had absolute assurance that that land belonged to him. And can I say this? That's wise. That's wise business practices. He said, I want to pay for it, and I want a deed and a contract because I want to guarantee that when you die, Ephraim, your sons can't say, no, our pop just gave that to you, but uh, we don't want to give it to you. So we're, we're, we're coming and taking our land back. And Abraham was a wise businessman, said, you know what, look, I understand dealing with the world. You need to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. So he says, I want to pay you. I want to pay for it, and I want the contract and the deed so I can guarantee nobody can come back later words and try and change the terms. That's wise. Listen, to be a Christian and walk in faith doesn't mean that you're foolish and presumptuous. If you're going to make a business transaction, make a contract. Pay money, get a contract, be wise, have a guarantee. But always in everything that you do, listen, put a higher value on the testimony of God than your own personal benefit. You know, I understand how the world does things and this and that. I'm not saying we shouldn't use wisdom and be good stewards. But listen, what is so wrong at times with on occasion saying, you know what? If what I can do really challenges people to see something about God in my life by saying, you know, okay, that's how much you want. I'll pay you full price for that car. I'll pay you full price for that house. I'll pay you full price for that thing. What? Nobody does that. Well, my God's good, and he wanted me to bless you. That's why I did that. Or, or my God will provide. My God's Jehovah Jireh. He'll take care of things. And sometimes we need to recognize, listen, there's a greater value to God's reputation and our testimony than there is to lots of other things. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Sorry for running a few minutes over. I wanted to finish up that chapter there so we weren't at an odd break. Father, thank you for... <clears throat> A time to study these uh, portions of Scripture tonight and to even bring this section to a close, Lord. Uh, and Lord, thank you for what your Spirit has spoken to us. Lord, may the seed of your Word remain in us and may it bear fruit as we walk out these things in the week ahead. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.